So hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming a good friend to the show, Scott Prue. Scott is the Chief Architect and Senior Vice President of Software Development for CSG International. He leads development and delivery teams for CSG's North American Billing and Customer Care Platform. As a 20-year technology industry veteran, Scott has broad experience across development and operations functions for companies ranging from small startups to large enterprises. He also holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Engineering from Bucknell University. I met Scott originally through a community in DevOps, and I saw him. First time I ever met Scott was actually at uh, uh, an event out in Las Vegas for the DevOps Enterprise Summit where he was a speaker. And uh, when I realized he was here in Chicago, uh, I made sure I, I, I found a way to get to meet him because uh, his presentation was fantastic. And if you're interested, in it, you can definitely YouTube it. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks, uh, Patrick. Thank you, Shelley. I'm really uh, glad to be here and uh, appreciate this opportunity to, to talk about DevOps and transforming companies and uh, something I've been really passionate about. And um, uh, I love opportunities like this. Thank you. Oh, that's great. And Scott, if you don't mind, can you share with our listeners, for those who aren't aware, what is CSG International? All right. Thanks for that question. So a bit about CSG. So CSG's uh, strategic mission is to deliver innovative customer engagement solutions that help businesses acquire, monetize, engage, and retain customers. We have about uh, 35 years of, of heritage of uh, delivering that with over 500 clients worldwide across um, 100 countries. And then as far as you know, businesses, CSG is uh, divided up into first, uh, digital monetization. And uh, that is really the business that helps our customers basically monetize and bill for the services that they provide. So these are customers like uh, a charter, a Comcast, a Dish Network in the United States, and then internationally, other customers like Telefonica, MTN, and Inmarsat. Uh, the second area of our business is really around customer engagement. And that includes uh, things like technician management. So getting technicians uh, to your house to basically install uh, services. Also things like, you know, email uh, communications, um, SMS, as well as our, our print businesses in the, the customer engagement um, division. And uh, we run really one of the largest print centers in the United States, uh, producing over 70 million uh, electronic and, and physical statements uh, per month. And then uh, finally, in our digital payments, uh, we have a digital payments business that really helps uh, collect uh, money by both credit cards uh, and uh, EFT. And then finally, I want to say, you know, personally, I've, I've spent the uh, really kind of the last um, set of years, almost the last decade, um, really trying to basically decode what makes high performance in companies and then apply that both to CSG and then I try to give back as much as I can to the industry to really kind of take a lot of the learns that we've had and um, basically um, educate others on those. So uh, the, the bill payment component of that is very interesting to me, specifically what's happened over the last couple of months with COVID of actually, I know many organizations, small organizations that 
their biggest pain point wasn't so much about doing the work or it was really just about collecting checks, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we had a couple things. So since we do produce uh, paper um, and, and put um, envelopes in the mail systems, it requires, you know, people to work in factories. So um, we did um, have a lot of work to do there to make sure that those areas were kept clean, sanitized, um, of course, with the, with the COVID risks. Um, additionally, and, and our, our folks there were just fantastic, right? I mean, they, they really stepped up, still came in to work and to support the, support the business. So we really just have um, a great bunch of folks there that really understood that, um, understood the risks, um, were willing to step up with, you know, kind of keeping the environments clean and sanitized and, and the distancing and then continue to run uh, that, that part of the business. We also have a kiosk business where we support kiosks um, and actually produce those kiosks for um, a large number of um, our communications providers. And so there was a lot of work done there to basically be able to still figure out how do you service those kiosks? How do we get them in locations that, you know, people can access them more safely? You know, of course, there were some that we, we had to shut down for a while as, as companies were kind of going through and trying to figure out how to, how to process payments during COVID um, and then provide alternative kind of payment me- mechanisms um, for individuals to actually make payments to these companies. So there was a lot of work done in, in the period and in, in the weeks after the COVID shutdown that we were just doing an incredible amount of innovation and, you know, really kind of cranking out spot products and features for our customers to basically be able to, to continue to support their business. You know, one of the, the, the interesting topics that uh, going, going back to the uh, your presentation last year, it does DevOps Enterprise Summit. I got to be honest, I, I, two stories. One, I use your phrase all the time about be heritage, not legacy. Uh, we, we do have a lot of our, our customers are moving to that new platform, that new digital reality. Uh, and sometimes there is, uh, as I think as you really uh, successfully identified of like the services, applications, all the things that you built before are why you're successful today to label them, you know, uh, legacy or, or something with a negative connotation is really uh, not a very productive behavior. I guess from your perspective, that whole concept of, why don't you explain the concept of, you know, heritage versus legacy? Yeah, well, and and uh, I, I did get some flack for kind of leveraging a new term, and people are like, "Why, why are you making up a new term to, to kind of describe it?" And and I'll, I'll I'll try to explain a bit why, and I kind of go a bit to the really kind of a bit of the the bimodal, really thought processes, which you know I've been pretty adamant were fairly flawed, and that's really kind of my thinking around leveraging you know a new term um, for that. So um, you know, Patrick, as you kind of allude. You know, these companies and us included have gotten to where we are by building great systems over the years. And, you know, kind of as technologists, we often are, have a kind of shiny penny syndrome, which is like, hey, if we can only build some new stuff in some new technology, whether it's microservices or cloud or whatever it is, you know, that will solve kind of a whole bunch of problems. And, and that's a very difficult um, proposition. It doesn't mean you don't leverage those technologies, but there, there's a very important balance you kind of have to strike. Um, if you're trying to kind of recreate, you know, 30 years of, you know, functional kind of heritage on a, a new tech stack, um, you've got to realize that that's probably a, a pretty difficult, if not unsurmountable task to kind of start from scratch. 
but there's been a lot of efforts that you see these companies undertake over the years that say like, look, like, look, let's call that old stuff legacy or a different mode. And we'll build some new stuff that kind of moves fast. And that is met with a variety of challenges. You know, the primary challenge is it's just a lot of hard work to, to, to get home. The second challenge is that those things are supporting your business today. And like, if you just forget about them, you kind of crumble that portion of the business. Um, Cause you're going to have all kinds of outside forces, things like compliance, you know, GDPR, California privacy, you're going to have hackers trying to attack it. You're going to have a workforce that um, is, is basically eventually kind of aging out and not able to support those types of things. And you're still going to have requests from customers. You're going to have scale issues, all of those things that all of a sudden now you've kind of left this, you know, quote legacy or different mode over here and tried to build something new. Um, and that's a really, really long and expensive road. And so, you know, what we kind of learned years ago and a bunch of these things and kind of, you know, not succeeding in kind of complete rewrites is to say like, let's go and apply these modern techniques, you know, version control, build pipelines, automated testing, you know, leveraging uh, automated um, test data setup, um, moving, you know, the current functionality to more modern, you know, operating systems, and then even doing stuff like building, you know, automated code conversion that produces really kind of um, isomorphic functionality. It's, it's, it might be different code, but it's really run through a code converter to produce the exact same thing. Um, and really started leveraging that with our, you know, kind of heritage systems and really kind of bringing those up to speed and then doing things like really drastically reducing the lead time and the cycle time to deliver functionality and features on those platforms by changing the way that we work and also the way that we operate and kind of and build those systems. And some of those kind of results have been pretty, pretty dramatic. And we kind of proved that, and this is also what the state of DevOps reports found is that you can apply these high performance capabilities and techniques to any technology. It does not have to be microservices on the cloud. And, and actually, you know, you can actually use microservices in the cloud and produce um, really suboptimal results too. And we've seen a lot of that also. But if you if you really understand these high performance capabilities, and um, Nicole Forsgren does a great job of laying those out in her fantastic book, Accelerate, those 24 capabilities, you can have nothing to do about the underlying technology themselves. They're capabilities that can be used on any technology stack. So when we kind of talk about kind of being heritage, you know, to me, it really means I can apply those capabilities to these systems that have supported the business for, for a long time. I don't have to kind of start and rewrite them. I can really kind of bring that, that forward. That's pretty awesome. It, it, it's, it's very interesting. Somebody, we were just having a conversation the other day about this very concept around innovation, right? But Sometimes I used to feel like when people were doing like a rewrite, it was like when they rebuilt Comiskey right next door to the old Comiskey. Yeah. Where it's like, you're going to have the same problems that you had at the old Comiskey, right? <laughs> like, I'm really, just the visual of the two buildings next to each other, I'm like, something seems wrong about that. Now, don't get me wrong. I know there's a big difference between the infrastructure inside of a, you know, 100-year-old-plus building and uh, an AS400. Yeah. Right? Our data models inside of an AS400. Somebody else was talking poop about AS400 developers the other day and saying there's no there's no uh, demand for them. I'm like, you're a crazy person. There's an insane amount of demand for 
they're doing whatever they can to find AS400 developers. So, yep. There's definitely a, a subtlety here in kind of thinking about bringing your traditional systems forward and then truly building a new business line, right? And there are reasons you would do that and reasons where you apply pure innovation and, and fund those things in a way that it's basically a new horizon. So there's kind of a fine line of understanding, hey, when does it make sense to do that? And when does it make sense to basically you know, take the systems that you have that are actually functionally very rich and great, and they've been built over many years and well understood and really kind of up-level the capabilities on them to get them to continue to deliver. And that's an alternate path that unfortunately I don't think enough companies kind of consider before they kind of say like, we got to rewrite everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, talking about like the different product lines, right? You know, Mick Kirsten talks about, right? The different value streams. Yep. Is that something that you have implemented CSG where it's like, hey, this is, this is a new product. We're, we're going to build and maintain and develop this differently than we would something that's a little bit more tried and true versus something that we don't think we're going to be using in 48 months. So I think the answer to that question is it kind of, it depends a little bit, but in general, um, we're big believers in value stream aligning as many of the people as possible to the delivery of our different product sets. And we mostly have kind of SaaS-based products that we actually run. And for the most part, most of those are organized so that we basically have, um, you know, the development engineering and operations really kind of all aligned together cross-functionally. And it's not just cross-functionally kind of from a value stream as an organization, but the teams ideally in most cases, and it's not every case, are cross-functional. So the, the teams have cross-functional talent basically from the design and architecture, the engineers and operations on those teams. So they are, you know, what you would call kind of build run teams. They're what some people may call DevOps teams, although I, I shy away from using the term DevOps um, in a lot of scenarios, not because I don't like it, because it's so overloaded. And people will say DevOps and they're like, well, what do you mean? Well, it's the deployment team. I'm like, well, that's not what DevOps means. But in our case, we take it to mean that there are cross-functional teams that operate the code that they actually build. And that's how you get the fast feedback and how you get operational concerns worked into the the software because those folks um, are on that same team. And Scott, speaking of cross-functional teams, you talked about how much innovation has happened over the last three months. Um, do you cite that to those cross-functional teams or is it more of a, a cultural issue? Not issue, but um, you know, it sounds like you've got a culture where you really empower people and they have a lot of autonomy. Um, so the answer is both. Um, so I think there's been a, th a couple of things in our transformation that has allowed us to really kind of evolve our, our culture. And, and, and I'm a, I'm a really big um, proponent of, um, of really kind of Shook's um, model of change and Shook's model of change really kind of looks and says, Hey, if you want to change your culture, you have to actually change what people do first. In other words, you have to change their actions and, leverage that as your first mechanism to, to kind of cultural change. And so when we kind of realized that that was really the best way over the years to kind of approach this, 
and and this is kind of many years in the making, you, you just can't change culture or people's actions overnight or have the way they behave. It takes kind of many years. So we went through a series of things that really kind of changed the way that that people and teams work on a day-to-day basis, really kind of originally going from very kind of waterfall-based handoffs in just the engineering process to kind of collaborative uh, design and construction and testing on, on cross-functional teams, and then eventually going um, and having the operations component on those teams too. So by doing that, basically we started to change both the expectations, the behavior, but then also the understandability of what a, a, a team unit kind of understood and owned, right? They, they understood both the engineering kind of the operations. And then when you do that, you obviously greatly kind of reduce things like the cycle time and lead times to actually get things through the system. Also, by creating that team that really owns all that, it starts to build capabilities in the people of what called kind of resilience because they need to understand much more of the complexities of the operational components. And with that, we, we did create, you know, really a, a, a environment of kind of cultural and psychological safety where the teams, now that they own all that, they also can experiment, you know, and, and when they fail, you know, we celebrate those things. We look at those issues and we actually work those into the backlogs and empower them to improve those types of things. So, so that is a, a, a very long-winded kind of answer to how you then eventually over time change the, the culture. So now when something comes like COVID, which no one could have predicted, what we had discovered is we had built this resiliency and adaptiveness into the teams and the ability to move very quickly. And so then when COVID came along, Basically, it was, you know, it was a big shock, you know, people work from home, but the teams now kind of buckled down and were able to basically uh, adjust very rapidly for that. And, and one of the other things we did kind of in the, in the behavior components, and all this sounds smart talking about right now, but remember, like, there was eight plus years of learning along the way and trying things that didn't work. But, but what we did find from, you know, kind of the, the you know, getting the operations kind of co-located and also doing things like getting the teams to own incident response and incident management, those are fantastic learning opportunities. So instead of putting incident response and management removed in some other organization in L1 and L2 and L3 handoffs, those things go right to the team and the teams handle the incident response. So that builds again this kind of you know resiliency and kind of understanding of production and also builds the capabilities in the team to deal with the surprises and the incidents. And so now when you have an external incident like kind of COVID, all of those things all of a sudden add up to you know your ability to respond to those things quickly. Wow. I have like about a million questions. <laughs> Go ahead. You could always split it into two parts. I'm trying to figure out the most important one. It's not easy. Uh, one part I really loved is the resiliency uh, concept, right? The uh, the feedback loops that you're creating, again, with the mindset of, you know, it's about improving. It's not about punishing, right? Um, there's a great book called Anti-Fragile. And it talks, oh, yeah. About, yeah, it, it talks about how stressors in, in environments or organizations that are, I, I like to use the word organic, right? They're, they're responsive to stressors. They improve. And it seems like that's what you were successful at doing is creating an environment where, you know, these types of minor setbacks created stronger muscle, created st- even in 
you know, created more psychological safety because we've been through it. Yep. We've been through some, some rigor and everybody's better friends for it. Yep. And if you study, I mean, you look, um, one, one of the best folks in the industry on this is, is John Ospa. And, you know, we've had him come to CSG and, and help, you know, kind of advise us on how we think about incidents. And, you know, basically, you know, his view is that an incident is a incident is an unplanned investment, right? And it's a learning opportunity and it's a fantastic way to learn how your production systems really behave. And, you know, as a leader, you know, I read every incident kind of review that comes out, right? That, you know, I want to understand what people were thinking at the time, you know, where the misunderstandings were, you know, the, the system flaws that exist, you know, all of those things really to kind of get a better understanding of, of how things really work because incidents end up exposing those things. So, so many companies view these incidents and, and just to be clear, they are a risk to the business. And, you know, we need to continue to kind of improve, but so many folks look at them as kind of a punishment and then not as an opportunity to say, hey, what what could we learn about the system? And the system includes not just the technology, but also the people and how they work and behave and what they actually understand and see during those those times and really getting underneath that and then continually spreading that knowledge about what they learned. Is, is so vital and also continue to build that culture that incidents are really this opportunity for us to understand, you know, what people's perception of how the system works is kind of meets reality of actually really how it works and, and bringing those two things together continually. That's pretty awesome. The, uh, I really like that unplanned investment concept, right? Yeah. I try not to use that with my clients because they, uh, <laughs> I think you should do it more. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I, I would say I was having this conversation myself is that I think, uh, we try to put scorecards around and obviously we're a consulting firm and we do a lot of different things for different people. But I said, I think one of the things that really creates that bond for us is when we have those meetings where we tell people the bad news a little bit, where it's like, Hey, nobody got into software development thinking it was going to go easy. Right. So the whole point is the, the only mistake is hiding it. Yep. You know, so the sooner you say, hey, this is what's happened and here's what we're going to do about it. That's where the trust is built. Yep. That's when people go, well, okay, well, they're, they're dealing with it like adults. And that, that makes, a, I think that makes a world of difference in my opinion. Yep. But yeah, the, uh, that feedback loop, one of the things that I, I'd love to hear that your thoughts on like, cause I believe that those reports, right. Those issues, those incidents reports, they're symptoms of the problem, right? They're symptoms of the system by which you're creating software, right? They're, they're, they're not the problem, right? They are just symptoms of the problem. And I think it's really, really hard to create. You, obviously, Agile teaches feedback loops and retros and things like that. But I think it takes a really strong culture to build an environment where people dig beyond the symptom, right? Where they go to the core and they say, you know, get down and like, it was sales, right? And sales goes, you're right. How do we fix it? Right. You know, is that something you've been able to do? And if so, what do you, what do you think you're doing to make that happen? Because I, if I see anything in the marketplace or organizations I'm I'm familiar with is that, that ownership of like, we're not just going to fix the data here. We're actually going to go fix the bug. Yeah. So I keep, I think there's a a couple things. And um, if we stick with incidents for a second, then we'll kind of go to the, maybe the larger kind of um, organizational thought processes. So I think in incidents, 
the general trend is people want, quote, an easy answer. And they also, unavoidably, will always apply hindsight bias, it, it just as, quote, human nature, because they only see the causal outcome that created the error. Um, so in other words, they see the error and they then say, well, how could this person or individual not seeing the event that caused that error? Because we see it. The only reason they, the person afterwards, sees it is because they have the benefit of hindsight bias. What they did not see are the multiple different paths that the the operator or the person involved in the incident was traversing at the time and trying to make decisions to basically, you know, meet what's called kind of the operational demands of the scenario, right? You're, you're basically, you know, patching a system and, you know, you make a mistake and you press the wrong button. And, you know, of course, an executive is like, well, you know, why'd you press the wrong button, right? Like they don't see all the other stuff, which is like, maybe they're a VPN in over a slow connection and the monitor, you know, lagged or there were new hosts added and, those were in a different location than the other. They don't see all of those things. And those only get exposed through kind of doing what's called kind of deep analysis into that and understanding what the people at the time were kind of going through. And that, that is a, a kind of a bit of an expert skill. But you have the executives who want the easy answer. They want, what's the root cause? Well, there's a person press the wrong button. You're like, well, okay. If you kind of stop there, you're not really basically, you know, you're not really, quote, in, improving, um, kind of improving the system. Um, so there, there's a piece where you, you need to let the teams own that and kind of go to the next level from the empowerment perspective and be really kind of allowed to do that. And then you need to get the improvements that they want to do to make that situation better in their kind of backlogs and allow them to do that thing and give them those kind of investments to make that right. In other words, you have to give them space money and time to say, hey, these are the, quote, improvements um, that that I want to do to kind of improve the robustness of the software system and also the resilience of the people that are in those environments to really kind of understand um, these things better and to, ad to adapt. So I think that's kind of a bit on the incident side of things. I think related to other stuff, kind of the organizational I do think there's, you know, because you mentioned sales, so that kind of I, I caught on that that you were maybe looking for something larger, kind of the organizational pieces. I think, you know, that is a, a traditional thing I continue to see around the way kind of people view solving like problems at larger levels related to a lot of times value stream alignment and kind of structure. You you end up having kind of so many silos and handoffs in many organizations that the kind of structure creates the these competing disincentives but they also create this just opportunity to kind of point fingers at each other not because folks are inherently you know antagonistic but just that their goals and incentives are really kind of set up to accomplish things that compete with each other and we continue to kind of see that time and again and kind of one of the things you know when when you start thinking of you know, these organizations as complex systems and, and behavior and how work kind of works across the structure. And then actually those types of incentives that it that it drives because of the structure, we start to think about, okay, unless we deal with that problem, then we're always going to have a, a lot of those kind of competing issues. And so I think that's some of the things 
you know, we've learned over the years just with, you know, going from waterfall to agile, going from agile to, uh, to DevOps, going from, you know, really kind of cross-functional teams and portfolios that are value stream aligned. When you align the structure correctly so that people's incentives are aligned, that's when you get 10x, 100x kind of types of performance. But if you don't kind of deal with that, you really kind of end up in this competing scenario um, all the time. Does that make sense? It does. And I, I appreciate it. And I, I said it might end up in sales, not as like a blame situation. But if you are debugging your organization as a whole, that is part of the story. And I think the critical element is, do you have a relationship between all of these various handoffs between sales, delivery, operations, whatever it is? Um, do you have the the feedback loop, the the ability to go and have a meaningful conversation with sales to say, hey, it would really help us downstream because they are most times downstream of sales, right? So if you, as the work comes across the business, if there's a line of communication where you can respectfully elevate an issue and say, hey, you know, every time we do this, X, Y, or Z happens, can we collaborate on how we can figure out how to improve that handoff, right? Yep. And, and that's vitally important. I, I mentioned incidents. So we do, we do things like that. We have the local review and that's really the team. And then we have global reviews on the incidents twice a week and anyone can participate in those. And we invite sales and the delivery organizations um, to those and they are welcome to give feedback, ask questions. Um, and those are opportunities at the you know, what we kind of call the global level to really learn the details about the incident, but also involve really a bunch of the other stakeholders and kind of understanding what happened and also, you know, what we're kind of going to do about those outcomes later. And, and you'll see kind of coming out of um, DevOps Enterprise Vegas in the fall, there'll be published a paper um, around kind of a bunch of patterns to incident management that we worked on. And, and in that, uh, there's 14 patterns, and we do document some of these incident management patterns um, that that can be leveraged for organizations. And since you you brought that up, and I, you know, being such a visible member in that community, I'm intrigued with the idea that you've been doing this, you know, for as long as you have, and you obviously have great success and experience. How did you get that started? How did that conversation begin when you you, you realized, hey, we've got to start doing this? The industries are changing, the way people are building software is changing. That that initial spark of waterfalls not working and we're going to start making this move to Agile. What are some of the things that you did to get that ball rolling at, at CSG? Yeah, well, I think it's the two large phases to the story and there's obviously a, a lot in between. But the quick of it, it was in 2007, I had met Dean Leffingwell, who's the founder of uh, Scaled Agile. Um, became really good friends with him. And um, that was really out of my kind of, you know, initial frustration with really, you know, the waterfall-based processes of, of constructing software. And I kind of met Dean, you know, through one of my good friends and mentors, uh, Mauricio Zamora. And, you know, we started talking about, quote, this problem. And just at the time, Dean was really kind of grappling with this, you know, the, the scaled agile concept and problem. And it wasn't called that at the time, but he was really trying to kind of formulate, well, how do you do this with large organizations? So kind of in that, you know, he and I had started a relationship over the years and really started to try to figure out, okay, how do you, 
how did I start looking at CSG and saying, we've got to really transform kind of what we're doing. And, you know, at the time I was more of a hardcore kind of software architect and, and writing a lot of systems, but I realized that our problems had absolutely nothing to do with the code that we were writing. Um, you know, it didn't really matter if we wrote some really great code, if we could never get it to production and consumed by a customer, we were kind of, you know, DOA. So that, that really, that first phase, it, it did last, you know, kind of a couple of years and fits and starts. And we did really center focusing a, a ton on technical practices at the time. More, it was the easier thing to kind of change people's behavior with. And those were things, the CI processes, automated testing, um, you know, building the software every day and integrating it every night. You know, those types of things got a lot of focus kind of in the 2007, let's say, till 10, 11 timeframe to build that foundation. And then really kind of finally in, in, in around the 2012 timeframe, you know, we were able to kind of convince, you know, the executive leadership at CSG that from a structural standpoint, we were kind of ill-structured to really deliver what the industry was demanding of us. In other words, these processes where you have, you know, design, you know, requirements, design, development, QA, operations, and then you have three oper- three different operations teams underneath there that created such incredibly long lead times, failure rates, and rework, um, we were able to convince, you know, with some pretty pretty compelling metrics, you know, across, you know, what the cycle times and lead times were, what the handoffs looked like, what our failure rates looked like, that we weren't going to fix that without reconsidering kind of the that organization. So that really kind of came into 2012 and really kind of Dean, um, Dean was kind of a key, you know, person for me that I learned a lot from and was able to leverage his influence on that. Um, there were a lot of other works kind of that came about in that time and folks like Don Reinerson's work with product development flow, Craig Larman's work um, really kind of all influenced like our ways of kind of, and even the Netflix, um, you know, um, culture and responsibility guide really kind of influenced a lot of that stuff and going into that 2012 timeframe. So then we kind of went into a high performance period, at least that I felt where we, we out of 2012, we were performing now at a level that I felt was quite a bit better. And, you know, that, that went for a bit. And all of a sudden we started kind of hitting bumps, you know, in, in maybe the 2013-ish timeframe, you know, of, of, of really now operations was really struggling with us moving at a much more rapid pace before everything was stage gated and water, you know, waterfall and all these groups and all those things were in place to basically just have these incredible time lag buffers between. So when you all of a sudden remove all those, everything kind of backed up now to the, the last place, which was operations. And we started to really struggle with that, with a lot of high friction, um, where you had the demands of the, the development and engineering folks now saying, well, we can produce this stuff a lot faster, but the operations team couldn't consume and run it. Um, and so it was kind of around that time in 13 when um, I got a draft of the Phoenix project. And um, I read that and I immediately was like, all right, this is our problem. I swear, whoever this guy Gene Kim is, is kind of what is, is sitting over my shoulder watching my organization. And I sent him an email and I said, hey, like, this is kind of us, even down to the fact that we run a print factory and we, you know, really high output, high quality, run very lean, that I would actually take our project, our IT project managers over to the print floor 
and really say like, look, this is how they load work into the print center. You know, they have what's called row one and they line up carts and each cart represents a job. And when they put a job in, they take the cart and they, you know, actually physically push it up to the computer monitor and key in the job. And they do that because it's the physicality of actually starting work is such an important thing. And if they start work without all of the resources, the envelopes, the paper, the ink, it'll be a disaster. And so I kind of told Gene that story and he's like, oh my gosh, he's like, you have to speak at this next conference I'm having. That was the 2014. And I was like, okay, I, I don't know one, why anyone would care about this stuff. And two, sure, we'll figure, we'll figure that out. And, and also kind of at that same time, I was really just struggling internally. And I kind of mentioned this in the, in the prelude, um, Patrick, is that I, I was losing the ability or I, I believed I lacked the ability to influence our executive teams that we still needed to do a lot more than we had previously that, that we had done to date. In other words, we kind of weren't done with really looking at how we get more value stream alignment out of, and at the time we didn't use that term, but that's really kind of what I had in my head was that structurally we were still highly ineffective. Um, you know, once we kind of hit the, the operational wall, we weren't producing what our, our customers expected. And so at, at that point, I understood, I started to understand that if I didn't leverage, you know, one, the community of, of these really, you know, bright, intelligent folks to understand and diagnose the problem was one thing and find ways out of it. And second, leverage them as influence to say, like, look, this is how leading companies are really thinking about transforming and we need to be one of them. That was, I think, critical in in really kind of getting to the next level of the transformation, which then finally happened in 2016, where we're able to say, look, can we value stream align really all of the folks who basically build and operate these products together into a, into a value stream? Um, and then since then, it's just been kind of a whirlwind of of every year kind of taking our learnings, trying to package them up, trying to share them as much as possible with the community. And then also take in really all the new stuff that is continuing to happening happen, like you know the learnings and incident response, the the ideas of cultural safety, the capabilities that now Nicole and team have kind of formulated. That you know we found those pieces along the way, but couldn't articulate how all those things came together. And so it's kind of been a whirlwind over the last couple of years of really continuing to assemble all that back together in a in an understandable package of of, of kind of what happened. And then what we need to do next to continue to kind of push the the, the organization forward. So that was a lot. <laughs> it's awesome. It's a great story. It it, it really is. It's it's an impressive body of work uh, to accomplish it. Initiate, instigate, see it through. Right. There's there's people out there that can you know start the trouble. Maybe can't finish the story. Some people can finish the story. Don't know how to start it. Uh, it's impressive what you what you've accomplished. Uh, and I think it it really. I think you stand apart in Chicago specifically for, for what you've accomplished. I think uh, I, I could speak intelligently enough to say that there are people who are aspirationally would like to be where you're at, right? They recognize that they are, you know, those, those concepts that you have of like, these are what leading companies are doing. It used to be, in my opinion, a, a situation where you could create dominance through that kind of strategy. It almost seems like a necessity for survival if you're not, applying those types of philosophies in the next four or five years. And I, and I, I would say that COVID has just only 
accelerated that, right? What might've been five years is now 18 months, 24 months. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what we, we understand. And if you follow, I mean, Mick, Mick Kirsten has some fantastic work on this and, you know, project to, to product and really kind of getting to value stream alignment, but a really a key piece of that book is also really the need for companies to, you know, and you mentioned digital, digitally transform, but really to build both the leadership and team capabilities to deliver high quality software at speed, because it truly kind of wipes through and, and affects every industry now. And the ones that will survive, you know, need to basically be able to do those things. And so it, and, and that's just accelerated. It keeps getting faster and faster. And, you know, the longer folks wait to kind of do that, it, 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 it really means their, their likelihood of surviving on the other side kind of gets less and less. Awesome. Well, I always enjoy having a conversation with you. Uh, I always learn so much. I think uh, our listeners probably have like a list of books that they should be reading at this point. Uh, I personally need to learn more about John Asma and the Shook's model of change uh, because I'm fundamentally not aware of either one of those. It usually doesn't happen. So uh, I recognize I got a blind spot there. I got to go fill, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to be on the uh, the podcast with us today. Like I said, I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Well, and thank you for the, for the time. This was uh, fantastic, and I appreciate the kind words. Uh, and uh, can help with anything else? Uh, let me know. We will. We definitely will. We also wanted to thank uh, our listeners. Uh, we really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. Listen. Uh, to Scott's story. And uh, uh, if you're in Chicago, if uh, even nationally, reach out to Scott. We'll see some of his YouTube videos. He's got some really amazing stuff. And if you'd like to receive uh, new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 